Section 8 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 8 Death Grips Part 7. As I swung along through the silent street, I felt a vague, indefinable dread creeping over me, a sudden terror of the unknown. People of nervous temperament have told us. They have felt that sensation, and described it as a vague premonition of impending disaster. At times I felt my mind about to grasp the elusive thought and shape it into words. I would stop abruptly in my walk, trying to find what it was I feared, but however, ere I could seize it, it would slip away again. The nameless dread would vanish, and I would walk on for the moment, reassured only to feel the same eerie sensation of awe gripping at my heart again. Twice I glanced apprehensively over my shoulder and smiled at my folly. When I gained the house, Ethel was sitting up for me, and I left my fears at the door as I crossed the threshold and stood in her bright company, but her quick eyes noted the pallor on my face. Why? she cried. Harry, what is the matter? Matter? I echoed. Nothing that I know of. "'My dear boy, you look as if you had seen a ghost.' She crossed the room and sat herself on my knee, twining an arm lovingly round my neck. "'Or as if,' she crooned playfully, "'you had been chased by my dressmaker with a long bill.' "'Which means,' I said, smiling, for her arm encircling me, "'I could find no room for fear in a heart so full of love. "'Which means, my dear Ethel, "'that you have your eye on a lovely new hat at Hall and Holtz or somewhere.' and mean me to augment that bill. No, dear, it is not a hat this time. Not a hat, said I, trying to recollect my repertoire of feminine adornments. Let me see, is it then one of those thingamabobs? What do you call them? Ficus? Nor is it a ficu, replied Ethel very gravely. I want you, Harry dear, to give up this black spot on the mosquito bar business. My dear Ethel, what a curious request. Nevertheless, I am quite serious. Oh, Harry, I cannot bear the ghastly look in your wide eyes. When you're lying there in that dreadful sleep, I cannot close an eye myself but sit watching and watching until you stir again, half afraid all the time you might not be able to bring yourself back again. I drew her face down to mine and kissed her. Besides, she continued, tenderly stroking my hair, it is worrying you. You have not been looking yourself of late. See, sir, she cried, slipping off my knee and planting her little hands on my shoulders. You are looking quite pale now, and those horrid lines, she traced them lovingly with her finger, are growing deeper and deeper every day. I drew her back again to my knee. Do you know, Ethel, I was about to decide myself upon giving it up. This settles it. At least I shall give up all personal experiments, and such investigations as I carry out shall be the researches of a mere outsider. "'Oh, I am so glad,' she said, clapping her hands with glee. "'And now, sir, I have a secret to confide to you.' And with a blush she placed her lips to my ear, and shyly whispered to me of a coming event that makes the husband wish that he could peer for a moment into futurity and be reassured. This was on a Tuesday evening. On Thursday evening, the weather being fine, I determined to dispense with a rickshaw and walk down from the office. I abandoned my usual route along the Bund and Broadway, and chose Shejuin Road, albeit a little longer. As I neared the Suchow Creek, a sudden agonizing pang shot through one of my teeth. 
It was one of those sudden twinges that make one catch one's breath, and it returned again and again with maddening persistency until I felt half-wild with pain. The tooth, too, was a sound one. At least I had never noticed any cavity in it. I walked hurriedly down the street, trying in my haste to dull the pain, and as I went, a brass plate with a name and the words Surgeon Dentist on the opposite side of the street caught my eye. Instantly the desire seized me to have the troublesome tooth out, decayed or not. Without a moment's hesitation, I crossed the road. I can remember experiencing no surprise at reading the name, A. Rawdon, on the plate as I passed in, though he had never before attended me in his professional capacity. It seemed quite natural, too, that the maddening ache should vanish as suddenly as it had come as I crossed the threshold. Still, I walked on and pushed open the door of the surgery. Arnold Rawdon was leaning over the back of his operating chair as I entered, his face white and drawn, as I had seen it on that first evening, but with a look of expectancy in his eyes, the change to triumph as he saw me walk straight to the chair and sink into it. "'Ah, you have come,' he muttered. Then in his more professional tones, "'Hm, let me see,' pulling my mouth open and peering in with that brutal inquisitiveness that is the special privilege of dentists. "'Yes, it will have to come out. Rather firm set, too. Will you have gas?' "'I detest gas,' I murmured feebly. "'I thought so,' with an odd smile playing about the corners of his mouth. "'Well, we will try something else.' While he was still speaking, I felt a change coming over myself. I felt that peculiar feeling of double consciousness that I was myself, yet not myself." Rodden, meanwhile, had turned to a cabinet on which stood a bottle and two glasses in readiness, and filled one of them nearly to the brim. "'Try this,' he said, coming toward me. "'I don't know if you're a connoisseur, but I think you will find this good stuff.' He had held the glass under my nose. It was brandy, neat brandy. I've been all my life a strict teetotaler, and the reeking odor of the spirits filled me with an unutterable loathing and disgust. Nevertheless, I seized the glass eagerly, and putting it to my lips, drained the contents at one long draught. "'So,' Rawdon said mockingly, "'that is better.' He turned casually away, taking up a paper and humming a light ditty to himself as he ran his eyes down the columns. And I sat there in the chair, perfectly rigid, unable to move a muscle, while every fiber of my being was crying out to get up and flee. My eyes were fixed on his form. He had his back partly towards me, as I strove to gather my strength for one supreme effort only to find it futile. Again and again I thus attempted to rise, but always in vain. After some time had elapsed, he let fall the paper and turned again to the bottle on the cabinet, filling my glass this time half full. "'Now,' he cried as he placed the glass in my hand, "'we will have a toast. We will drink to dear Mrs. Keith.' He turned and poured out a few spoonfuls into the other glass. Look, I too intend to honor the toast. Are you ready? Well then, to dear Mrs. Keith, and long may she be happy in her wedded life. To dear Mrs. Keith, I echoed obediently, and the rest of the sentence was lost. I was swallowing with avidity the scalding liquid in my glass. Rawdon watched me with malignant satisfaction gleaming in every repulsive feature, then turned away again to a couch and with his arm hanging limply over the side, seemed to be dozing off. As I sat there, a second and more insidious change began to creep over me. The feeling of double consciousness was becoming less distinct. The predominant alien will to which my own personality had succumbed appeared to be deserting the captured citadel. My thoughts, 
that had hitherto been so agonizingly clear were becoming blurred and dim until my head fell forward in stupor and partial oblivion. I took no note of the time as I crouched there in that chair, while a little marble clock ticked off the seconds and added them to the irrevocable past. I only know that it was dark when I again stirred to some faint knowledge of my surroundings. I have a dim recollection of someone, it must have been Rawdon, ushering me ceremoniously out of the house. He hailed a passing rickshaw, into which, with his sympathetic help, I clambered. He gave my address to the coolie, and as we clattered off, stood bowing and smiling his farewells at the gate. And as the rickshaw sped through the night, jolting down North Sejuan Road with my head hanging helplessly over the side, keeping time to every jar and jolt, I realized dimly that I was hopelessly, sottishly inebriated. Drunk as the dipsomaniac who, having eluded the vigilance of his watchers, has stolen undetected into a well-stocked wine cellar, and with the tooth untouched. End of section 8